Welcome to the Freak Show, fellow freaks. I'm Matthew Brockmeyer. I'm Krista Carmen. And this is Murder Coaster. Today we bring you one of the most bizarre and brutal true crime stories of all time. A tale of cruel and twisted fate and barbaric savagery. And while it is the twists and turns that often define this story, at its core, it is really the tale of two mothers and their deep and undying love for their only sons. One mother, a protector of innocence. One mother, a harborer of evil incarnate. Ladies and gentlemen, we bring you the Wineville Chicken Coop Murders, a tale of two mothers presented in four acts. And this episode was requested by longtime listener and very good friend of the show, Ashley Doss. This one's for you, Ashley. We hope you enjoy it. Let's begin. Act One, Cruelty Incarnate. The setting, Los Angeles, California, the Roaring Twenties, a glitzy and glamorous city of Hollywood, flappers and silent movie stars like Greta Garbo, the flashing lights of Sunset Boulevard, jazz melodies wafting through smoky speakeasies, but also a gritty industrial city of oil fields, factories, and shipping yards with a sprawling suburbia and a city with darkness, organized crime, depraved and dark passions. And it's here, in the City of Angels, that our two mothers dwell. The first mother in today's tale of two mothers is Sarah Louise Northcott. Her husband Cyrus was a contractor and construction foreman, and they had two grown children, a daughter named Winnie and a son named Gordon. The family was originally from Saskatchewan, Canada, but had relocated to sunny Los Angeles, California. Winnie, who had a family of her own, stayed behind in Canada, but Sarah's son Gordon eagerly went along, anxious to be in Hollywood, the land where dreams come true. Gordon was the apple of Sarah's eye. She'd always fawned over him, smothering him in affection, letting him sleep in bed with her until he was a teenager. Anything Gordon wanted, Gordon got. In a time when many hadn't even seen an actual automobile, he asked for a convertible, a Buick Roadster, and got it. A yellow one at that. Gordon loved fancy clothes, and his mother indulged him, buying him hand-tailored suits and expensive haircuts. Gordon was classically trained as a musician from a young age and was an excellent pianist. And his mother often fretted over his delicate hands and fingers. He'd played with orchestras, made a few bucks playing parties and small concerts, and often provided the background music in theaters for silent films. His dream was to one day be a famous concert pianist. He was bright and witty, articulate and philosophical, not to mention handsome in a boyish and oafish kind of way. 
Sarah loved her only son so much, she was able to overlook his many negative traits, his pride and vanity, his temper, which could turn violent, also the fact that he was a pedophile, rapist, torturer, and budding serial killer. At 20 years old, Gordon didn't show motivation for much besides music and going to the movies. He showed no interest in construction or being a contractor like his father Cyrus, and his mother agreed such rough physical labor could damage his hands. But when he expressed an interest in running a chicken ranch, sensing a financial opportunity, the family bought him three acres of land 40 miles east of Los Angeles, outside the tiny town of Wineville. Here, they planned on building a small farmhouse where Gordon could live, as well as many coops for the birds, a brooding room where broody birds could nest on their eggs, a candling room where eggs could be candled or held up to the light to see if they'd been fertilized, and how far along the chicks were, as well as outbuildings for tools and supplies. It was quite the project, but Cyrus was an experienced carpenter and promised to set his contracting skills to work, helping his son build the ranch. But Sarah fretted over Gordon's delicate hands and fingers. She didn't want them damaged working, constructing buildings, building pens and coops. So it was decided they'd recruit the son of Gordon's sister, Winnie, who, as we stated earlier, had stayed up in Canada when the family moved to Los Angeles. This nephew of Gordon's and grandchild of Sarah's was named Sanford Clark, and he was only 13 years old when Gordon drove up to Canada to retrieve him as a farmhand. Sanford's mother's relationship with her brother Gordon was strange. When he arrived in Saskatchewan in his yellow convertible, the two behaved like cohorts as they whispered and giggled. Then, with little ceremony, Sanford was whisked away. The family thought going to California and working the land would be good for Sanford, who was often considered a daydreamer and lazy. They were also struggling financially and eager to have one less mouth to feed. The only one who seemed to care at all that Sanford was being hauled nearly 2,000 miles away to another country to work for his creepy uncle was Sanford's sister, Jessie. She'd always been the protector of her little brother, but there was nothing she could do besides hug him, tell him she loved him, and make him promise to write. Immediately, Sanford was struck by how odd his uncle Gordon was. As they drove through Canada, Gordon would be in a happy, frantic, manic state one minute, excitedly talking about books and movies and music, his goofy philosophy on life, gesturing wildly with his hands, eyes wide. Then he suddenly stopped talking, go eerily silent, his mood now foul and dark, angry and tense. Then... With no warning, he'd be back to grinning like a fool and talking a mile a minute. At the U.S. border in Montana, Uncle Gordon was able to talk custom officials into letting him bring Sanford across, claiming he had dual citizenship, but they'd lost his papers. Uncle Gordon was a talker, and jabbering on and on, officials were just anxious to get him moving so they didn't have to listen to him anymore. A long trip to Los Angeles was strange and harrowing. At night, Uncle Gordon would stretch out in his luxurious automobile while Sanford slept on the cold ground with a thin blanket. During the day, as they drove, Uncle Gordon would lecture his nephew about Hollywood, about stars like Greta Garbo and his 
manic thoughts on everything from money to art to books, things like his philosophy on Hemingway, which was the only control you get in this life is in the destruction of life. That's it. Gordon would then quiz Sanford, and anytime Sanford couldn't answer, he'd smack him in the back of the head. Hard. So hard, Sanford would see stars. But eventually, the two made it to sunny Southern California, so much different than Saskatchewan, Canada, with palm trees and orange groves, the glistening Pacific Ocean. Eventually, they pulled up to Sanford's grandparents' house in Los Angeles. Now, if Sanford was excited to see his grandmother, Sarah, hoping for a little love and affection, he was sorely disappointed. As soon as the two entered the house, Sarah was immediately all over Gordon, nearly weeping with relief at his arrival, straightening his hair and caressing him, giving him candy and brewing him tea, completely ignoring her grandson, Sanford. Sanford's grandfather, Cyrus, just glared at him angrily over his paper. But eventually, Grandma Sarah did turn her attention to Sanford. Not to exclaim her love and joy and tell him how happy she was to see him, how she had missed him. No. Instead, she began to bark at him how it was his responsibility to get that chicken farm together, and that if her dear, precious Gordon received one callous, one hurt finger on his delicate musician hands, there would be hell to pay. It became very clear quite quickly to Sanford that he was seen not as a family member, but as a slave. And when Sanford didn't respond fast enough to his grandma Sarah, Uncle Gordon Plum punched him in the side of the head, knocking him off his chair and to the floor. Grandma Sarah just glared at the teen crumpled on the ground, while Grandpa Cyrus called out from the other room that they'd better not damage the furniture. And when little Sanford pushed himself up, Uncle Gordon belted him again, this time for getting up without being told. One night, when Grandma and Grandpa had gone to bed, Uncle Gordon hit Sanford completely unexpectedly, so hard that it knocked him out cold. When he awoke, his uncle was naked and licking Sanford, sucking on him, playing with his body while he masturbated. It was horrifying and surreal. His uncle was covered in a thick pelt of matted hair, looking more like an animal than a man. And Sanford remembered back to when his uncle had lived in Canada, and they'd called him the ape. Afterwards, Uncle Gordon seemed to insinuate that Sanford had somehow been complicit and he'd end up in prison for unnatural acts if anyone discovered what had happened between the two. Telling him to, quote, stick with the devil you know or else he'll be pulling a train in prison. Then explaining to the young boy that pulling a train meant he'd be gang-raped, scolding him to remember it was better to be here with the ape than in a prison cell where he'd just be a plaything for the hardened criminals. Beaten, molested, humiliated, gaslighted, scorned by his own grandparents, and given over as a slave to his uncle by his mother, Sanford Clark went out of the frying pan and into the fire when his uncle finally took him to the lonely and desolate piece of land 40 miles east of L.A., on the outskirts of Wineville, 
where Gordon planned on building his chicken ranch. The ranch was nothing more than a barren patch of rattlesnake desert with a water pump and an old wire fence. The two set up a large tent and quickly began constructing the first of the chicken coops and pens. And within days, chickens were being brought to the farm. And within a week, the first rape occurred. At first, Uncle Gordon just gently pressed himself into Sanford, caressing him. But when Sanford realized what was happening and pulled away in shock, Gordon clubbed him in the head and dragged the boy to his tent, where he viciously assaulted him. Sanford howling in pain and wailing the entire time, screaming in terror and weeping hysterically. When Gordon was done, he dragged Sanford to a tiny, temporary chicken coop, no bigger than a closet, and threw him inside with the birds to the dirt floor littered with chicken shit, growling, Stay there. If you move before I come back, I'll break both your legs so you can't go nowhere. Uncle Gordon then got in his car and sped off, leaving Sanford there, bloody in the dirt and chicken shit. When Gordon returned, he had a young Mexican boy with him. He took him to the brooding room, a windowless, secure shelter where hens are kept to hatch their eggs. Sanford listened as screams soon came bellowing out, the boy pleading and pleading for help in Spanish, Uncle Gordon asking him, What the hell are you doing out here anyway? Why would you just come out here with me? The cries of agony went on for hours, echoing in Sanford's head as he lay curled up in the coop. At dawn, Uncle Gordon appeared in the doorway of the coop where Sanford lay, laughing good-naturedly, telling him to relax and come on out of there. Sanford crawled out, limbs sore and cramped from being curled up in the tiny enclosure. Uncle Gordon then told Sanford to get to work, check the feed levels, clean out the water. For the next few days, as Sanford worked the ranch, tending the birds, constructing coops and fences, working on the foundation of the farmhouse, he could hear the pleading wails of pain from the Mexican boy in the brooding shack as Uncle Gordon assaulted him. Then one day, Uncle Gordon brought Sanford an open can of beans and told him to bring them to the boy in the shack. Sanford trembled in fear. He did not want to go to that shack, but what choice did he have? He knew better than to disobey Uncle Gordo. At this point, he'd learned to just obey every command and make himself invisible, if at all possible. So he took the beans out to the shack and swung open the door. The boy, covered in filth, his head a swollen mass of bruises, chains around his ankles, led to a heavy post sunk deep into the hard earth. The boy leapt at him, grasping the beans and hungrily gulping them down, then pleaded with him in Spanish as Sanford backed away towards the door. The boy's pleas grew louder and more raucous. Sanford's heart ached. He wanted to help him, wanted to grab the hacksaw and set him free. But then what? Go where? They were in the middle of the desert. Uncle Gordon would kill the both of them if he caught them. So Sanford crept back at the door, horrified and shocked. It was then that Sanford realized why his uncle had wanted a secluded chicken ranch in the middle of nowhere. It wasn't to make money. He had no interest in chickens or eggs. He wanted a playground of sadistic sex and torture, where no one could hear his victims scream. 
The next day, when Sanford awoke, Uncle Gordon's car was gone. His uncle must have gone to town for supplies. So Sanford went to the brooding shack and peered inside. The boy, he was gone too. His uncle must have taken him to town with him. When Uncle Gordon returned, he was alone. Within a few months, the farmhouse was completed, just a simple rectangular box sectioned off into a few rooms. Grandpa Cyrus helped them throw it up. They'd also dug a pond and stocked it with ducks, got a few goats to keep the brush at bay, and stocked the pens with hundreds and hundreds of laying hens. Sanford came to relish the time his Grandpa Cyrus was around, although Cyrus basically scorned and ignored him, showing him no love or affection. But when his grandpa was around, at least Uncle Gordon was sure to never rape Sanford or beat him too badly. Uncle Gordon took to calling his nephew Sanford my new darling. Sometimes he'd lock both hands around Sanford's neck, fingers locked in a painful grip, looking his nephew in the eyes and cooing to him. Oh, my new darling, my new darling. If you ever tell anyone about us, I will grab you like this and keep on squeezing until you're all the way gone. Uncle Gordon had a piano delivered to the farm and would practice all day. The sounds of ascending and descending scales echoing out over the desert. The spine of the San Bernardino Mountains in the distance. Brown smog seeping up from Los Angeles in the far, far distance. Uncle Gordon began demanding that Sanford write letters home dictating what to say. His sister was the only one who noticed how strange the letters were, that though they were obviously written by Sanford in the boy's handwriting, they didn't sound anything like him. They were curt and blunt. His sister had moved out by this time, was struggling to make it on her own, but vowed to get to the bottom of what was going on with her beloved brother. Meanwhile, the rapes were placing a mighty toll, both physically and mentally, on Sanford, only 13 years old. He was in constant pain, often bleeding heavily, as well as gaunt and malnourished. But psychologically, he felt guilty. He blamed himself somehow, though he was a literal captive and slave. Often his uncle would fondle him, stroking him until he climaxed, then laughing at him, saying he knew he liked it. And this proved it. But he didn't like it, of course. He hated it, hated it all. But how would he ever be able to explain that to anyone? They'd say he was as guilty as his uncle. He was filled with shame and resignation. There was no escape. This was simply his terrible lot in life. This was what he deserved. And Uncle Gordon was just growing more and more savage and sadistic. One morning, he awakened Sanford by pouring boiling water over his back, then marched him out to the brooding shack, demanding he dig a shallow pit, only a foot or so deep, when the pit was completed. Uncle Gordon clubbed Sanford, knocking him out cold. When Sanford awoke, he was in the pit, lying on his back. At first, he feared he'd been buried alive. But then he could make out thin, dim light coming through slats and hear the chickens above him. It was then he realized he'd been laid in the pit and the top had been covered in boards. The boards weighted down with heavy tools and equipment, sacks of concrete and chicken feed. There, in the suffocating darkness, 
barely room to move at all. Sanford learned to turn his mind off, to concentrate on breathing, to not panic, and just quietly exist. Time ticked forward. More Mexican boys would show up for a couple of days, a week maybe, then vanish. Uncle Gordon would disappear for days at a time, leaving Sanford to tend to the farm alone, a peaceful time he appreciated. Then one day, Uncle Gordon roared up to the ranch in a cloud of dust, shouting for Sanford. When his nephew appeared, Uncle Gordon told him he'd a present for him and handed him a bucket. Sanford took the bucket, which was covered with an old rag, and slipped the piece of cloth off, confused at what he was seeing at first, until it hit him. It was a human head staring up at him. Sanford felt all the blood drain from his face as he peered at the decapitated head staring up at him, resting in a thick puddle of congealed blood. Uncle Gordon laughed and laughed, telling him, Do not puke. You hear me? I said, do not puke. That is an order. Gordon ordered Sanford to get a fire blazing and burn the head as long as he could. When nothing but the blackened, brittle skull remained, he then ordered him to crush it with a fence post, pound it into tiny fragments, then pound those fragments to dust and splinters. Early spring in the Southern California desert, the smell of sage, cool, dry breezes, the days still short. It was a pleasant March day when Uncle Gordon pulled up to the ranch with a new boy. This one, not Mexican like the others had been. The boy was small and quite young. Sanford guessed eight, maybe nine at the most. But he was feisty, demanding to know where the horses were that Gordon had promised him he could ride if he visited the ranch. Sanford managed to mumble, Do you know him? Uncle Gordon grinned and said, Kinda. As the little boy began yammering away at Sanford about how he did, in fact, know Gordon saying, my mama and I met him at the store once and talked to him. Mama said he seemed like a nice, friendly man. Sanford's stomach retched. If the boy knew who Gordon was, even in passing, he was surely doomed. Uncle Gordon grinned at the youngster, who was back to demanding to know where the horses were, got down on one knee and spoke softly to him. Walter, it's time to tell you the truth. Your mother has been very, very angry with you for a long time now. I don't want to say that she is so sick of you that she has actually started to hate your guts. That's not what I'm trying to say. So forget about it. Don't worry. She doesn't hate you. I promise you that your mother does not hate you. She's just tired of you. She doesn't want you anymore, Walter. And that's the ugly truth of it. What do you mean? Walter asked, lip beginning to tremble, tears welling. Where are the horses? You said there were horses. My mom wants me at home. You better get me back home to my mom. And with that, he began to wail and cry. Uncle Gordon laughed, looked up at his nephew, and said, Hey, Sanford, I'm going to fuck this little kid until I get tired of him, and then I'm going to strangle him to death. Uncle Gordon then led the weeping child along, past coops of squawking chickens, down the dusty desert path of sagebrush, up and into the farmhouse, shutting the door behind him. Oh, 
fuck, man. This shit is so intense. Now, I'm, I've seen the pictures of this farmhouse, and it's more, it's just like a little shack. But whenever I, like, think about it in my mind, I just always see the farmhouse from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> and it's like that scene when Leatherface slams the metal door shut, and it just goes ringing out, and it, like, makes every hair on your body stand up. That's that's the feeling I got when we just did that, man. It's And this story, it just gets more and more like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre as we're gonna see soon yeah strap in because just <laughs> it's gonna get uglier uh so uncle gordon kept the little boy chained up in the farmhouse for days raping and torturing him sanford hearing the sad cries spill out of the windows sounds like a chicken makes when you wring its neck followed by the sounds of gordon practicing the piano then early one morning Uncle Gordon shook Sanford awake. Wake up, wake up, come on. I need your help. What is it? Sanford sleepily asked, rubbing at his eyes. Gordon tossed a length of dog chain with a hefty padlock on it at Sanford, telling him, go get the kid, take him to the brooding shack and chain him up good. Tell him if he makes a sound, we'll kill him. I've got to get everything ready. My mother's coming. Now all I can picture is Norman Bates, but hey. (laughs) Sanford did as he was told. When he saw the little boy for the first time since he'd entered the farmhouse nearly a week ago, he thought to himself, oh, that used to be Walter. Fuck, man. The kid was covered in welts and whip marks, deep bruises forming on his face. He trembled, radiating fear. He seemed more dead than alive and he could barely walk, blood streaming down his legs. When they were alone, the little boy pleaded with Sanford to tell Uncle Gordon he was sorry. He was so, so sorry. Ask him to stop. Please stop doing these things to him. Oh, man. Okay. Grandma showed up, exclaiming how handsome her son Gordon was, like a movie star, toddling her little boy, listening in rapture as her talented child played the piano. And she wanted the grand tour of the farm and got it, helping to single out sickly chickens to call. Of course, she completely ignored her grandson, Sanford, which, I mean, I don't even get. Most grandmothers I know, they love their grandchildren more than their children. I'm sure my mom loves my children more than she loves me. (laughs) I know. I don't get that either in this story, like why the grandparents are such utter assholes to this poor kid. His family just hates this poor kid for some reason. So as they're strolling the grounds, Uncle Gordon playfully tossed eggs at Sanford, smashing them in the back of his head, not letting him wash up. Grandma did nothing. All was great. A fine and dandy visit until the next afternoon when grandma came marching up to uncle Gordon and smacked him right across the face, hissing, you filthy bastard. And this next part is the conversation as written in the extremely well-researched true crime book, the road out of hell by Anthony Flacco. It's an incredible book though. Honestly, it's a hard book to read because of the very detailed accounts of these Just horrible crimes. So how much of this conversation is factual and found through research and how much was embellished by the author? I don't know. But we're going to just play it out 
And it's here where things get even darker. You may be asking yourself, how could it get much darker? Well, let's get into it. As Grandma Sarah says to her son, why don't you just take out your gun and shoot every one of us right now? Gordon was stunned. What? I swear to God, Gordon, why in the name of Jesus himself didn't you just wait until we were asleep and then shoot us in the goddamn head? Gordon stammered. Mama, are, are you nuts? Oh, you better shut up this time, son. You don't know how much I know already. I just talked to him, Gordon. I see. You, you went out to my locked shed then, did you, mother? Locked nothing? Don't you forget who paid for this farm? Oh, I've watched you sneaking out there. Got curious about my boy's special interest. You always had such interesting little projects. And then you keep the keys over there on the mantle. I thought that was an invitation to meet your new boy. That kid, Walter? Ah, <sighs> oh, don't tell me you believed anything he told you. He lies every time he opens his mouth. He's useless as a piss hard on. A piss hard on? You're joking at a time like this? It's no joke. You should have seen it. Uh, uh, no, really, though. What did that kid tell you? He tried to tell me that he was sorry. Sorry, Gordon. He kept on saying it. Sorry, sorry, sorry. He said his mother told him that you seemed nice. Oh, and he wants you to know that he doesn't care that you don't have a pony. Jesus, Gordon, a pony? All right. All right. I know how this has got to look to you. Stop right there, son. I have turned my back on your special interests year after year. We moved our family out of Canada and hoped to leave your special interests behind. My advice and my protection has kept you out of jail because of your special interests. And I appreciate... Now you have rewarded me by taking a risk with somebody who knows you. He doesn't know me. He's got a mother out there who met you. Did you go stupid on us, Gordon? Did you do that? Oh... All right, I can't ever fool you, Mommy Mommy. I don't know why I even try. You catch me in a lie every time I try to tell one. Don't you ever forget that either. Now, what did you go and do this time? I just lost control, Mama. You know I hardly ever do that anymore, and this one time I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to, Mother. But by the time I woke up and realized that I had what I had been doing to him, it, it was too late. This is why you wanted me here, isn't it, Gordon? I don't care how much people ever laugh at me for being sick in the head, Mama. I will always love you and be grateful to my sweet mother for all of her help. Well, you better be. I am. All right. The quietest way to kill him is to use an axe. Every one of us will strike a blow on the boy so none of us can ever talk about it. Boom. Bam, man. Now it's a Rob Zombie movie. Now it's, <laughs> now it's Hills Have Eyes and Texas Chainsaw and all the other horror movies about a psychotic family in the desert killing innocent folks together. Fuck, man. And this poor kid, Sanford, you know, he's just a child, really. He's stuck out there with a mother who loved her son so very much she'd do anything for him, even kill an innocent child to cover up his devious sex crimes. Oh, man. And I shouldn't laugh because it is so, 
absolutely terrible for Sanford and all the boys that were brought there. But like it. We're laughing at what an asshole idiot this guy is. Well, and like you said, it's like a Rob Zombie movie. The reason I laughed is because it's like it really like truth is stranger than fiction. Like it really is like you can't even believe it. It's like something that somebody would sit down and be like, I'm going to write a fucked up horror movie script. Like, nope, this is worse. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Like extreme horror, like extreme horror communities always getting like this and that and messed with. And people are saying they're this and that. And it's like, man, the truth is like more extreme than anything anybody could ever think of. Yeah. Yeah. And now ladies and gentlemen, act two. A cruel twist of fate. Our second mother in our tale of two mothers is Christine Collins, a woman to whom fate would be most cruel. Christine had fallen in love with and married Walter Collins, a motorman for the Los Angeles Railway Company. And the two had a son, Walter Jr. But little did Christine know her husband had a secret. A hidden past. His real last name was not Collins at all, but Anson. And he had a rap sheet he was hiding from the stalwart and upstanding Christine. His main crime was simply poverty. An impoverished youth in Colorado, he'd committed petty thefts as a minor before moving to California. In California, he was arrested for a very minor burglary And the arresting officer actually recommended leniency in the case as he was just a teenager struggling to survive. But the judge threw the book at him and sent him off to San Quentin prison. Attempting to start a new leaf, when Walter was released from prison, he changed his last name to Collins, found steady work, married Christine, and had a son, hoping to put the past behind him. Unfortunately, he wouldn't be so lucky. Another motorman accused him of robbing him at gunpoint for $23.80, an accusation Walter steadfastly denied. It appears there was some kind of work drama going on, and Walter was being accused of this crime as a means of retaliation. But he was arrested, and when the police discovered his real name and criminal past, they grilled him for four days straight. After days of no sleep and threats of violence, He finally confessed. Today, the concept of false confessions given under extreme duress are well understood. But at the time, a confession was tantamount to undeniable guilt. And he was sent back to San Quentin. With her husband in prison, Christine became the breadwinner for the family. She loved her nine-year-old son with all her heart and set out to provide for him, becoming a telephone operator. Christine and her son fell into the rhythm of life in the 1920s. School, work, the movies, radio shows. They were devoted to each other and were all they had. Walter was everything to Christine, and Christine was everything to Walter. They kind of remind me of a late 70s television sitcom. The single mom and her cute, whimsical scamp of a son who are going to make it against the odds, you know, with a whole bunch of little rascals thrown in. One day, little Walter asks his mother if he might have a dime to go down the street and see a movie. He walked out the door, dime in hand, and never came home again. Oh, okay. So this is heavy, real heavy part, since we all know what happens to little Walter. 
So to lighten it up, I thought we'd take a look at the movies that were playing then that he might have actually gone to see. And there was actually some great stuff out. So I figured he was probably going to see Charlie Chaplin's The Circus because that seems like a great kid's flick. But if he was a spooky freak like us and already into horror movies, which I honestly was at his age, there is a chance that he was going to see The Fall of the House of Usher or The Terror, where guests at an old English manor house are stalked by a mysterious killer known only as The Terror. The Man Who Laughs was playing as well, a horror film about a proud noble who in 1690 refuses to kiss the hand of King James, so he's cruelly executed and his son surgically disfigured. Yowza, surgically disfigured, and they say modern horror movies are violent and weird, yeah. right? <laughs> check, check out this one. This one's from 1928, right? I mean, they're all from 1928. It, get this IMBD description. A daughter of destiny. Horror. A scientist with an interest in genetics impregnates a sex worker with the seed of a hanged man, giving birth to a child who has no concept of love. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I know. What a fucking movie, man. 1928. It's got the craziest horror movies. And if you were into grand religious epic, The Passion of Joan the Ark had just been released, and it was at 114 minutes long. Pretty Good long. grief. All right, so back to Christine Collins and her missing little boy, Walter. Christine is frantic, calling the police, deeply troubled and upset. And, you know, the city of Los Angeles it was still reeling from this incredibly disturbing kidnapping and murder that had happened just that past December of 12-year-old Marion Parker. The little girl had been kidnapped from her school and a ransom was sent to her family. The first time the girl's father went to pay it, the kidnapper saw the police tailing him and fled, sending notice back that if he brought police again, the girl was as good as dead. So for the second time, the girl's father went to pay the ransom. And this time the police agreed not to tail him. They just saw no choice in order to save the girl's life. The girl's father brought the ransom to the drop-off and paid it to a masked man who pulled up in a car, toting a shotgun. Once the ransom was paid, the man said, Here's your daughter, and opened up the door, kicking the little girl's corpse out. Her limbs had all been cut off. Her eyes were fixed open with wires. She'd been disemboweled and stuffed with rags. Later, her arms and legs would be discovered, wrapped in newspaper, and dumped on a street corner. Jesus fucking Christ. In Los Angeles, like dude. The absolute worst outcome of handing over all your money, hoping to get your daughter back. Jesus. Yeah. He had the eyes pinned open so that if he goes, can I look at her real quick? He could like flash her face and her eyes would be open. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting side note. Israel Keys did the same. Thing. I was just that? thinking of him. <laughs> Literally. That's why I like hadn't started yeah. talking yet. Cause my mind went down this whole like sidetrack. Of, <laughs> know, right? Cause he photographed the girl for the right. longest time. Yes. Yes. With the yes. newspaper next to her. Yeah. Yes. Oh, mm-hmm. oh my God. Anyway, no, no, I'm, Pulling my brain up from that. We have to do hole. him sometime. I want to. Yeah, it's brutal, but it's it's fascinating. You know, it's, he's a fucking crazy character. 
Yeah, I actually didn't even, I got like so freaked out from reading that. Um, what's the really good book about him that? Uh... I don't remember. I don't know. You know, but there's a podcast and it's called True Crime Bullshit. You ever listen to it? No. Did they it's do one an episode of the most, on him? No, the entire thing. Israel Keys oh. said that's a quote from him. He goes, "Oh, somebody into that true crime bullshit will probably be interested." Yes, and so they called the podcast that, and it's one of the most epic, intense. Like, like it was one of the podcasts where, like, at some point, cops are coming to the podcast host and going, "Do you know what what was going on in this time in this place?" Because the guy had researched it so well. Jesus. It's 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 amazing. It's an amazing podcast. Um, I was thinking about that American Predator, the hunt for the most meticulous serial killer of the 21st century. It's by Maureen right. Callahan. Um, I've stopped reading it because I just got just like, not, I don't get like scared, but I got like so overwhelmed in a way by how just much he did and was able to do. And I just like kind of put it aside and didn't go back to it. I should. Maybe I'll read it again before we do our episode. Anyway, back to poor Marion Parker. So it was an absolute disaster and terrible embarrassment for the LAPD. The culprit was eventually identified as William Hickman after one of the rags stuffed into the little girl was identified as coming from his apartment building. After a massive manhunt, he was apprehended in Oregon spending the ransom. The man, named Hickman, had been a co-worker of the girl's father. He would be hanged on October 19th, 1928. Ugh, such a gnarly story. Indeed, and the police don't want any more embarrassments, especially as everyone is also talking about how corrupt they were, which they totally were. The corruption of the LAPD in the 1920s was legendary. Bugsy Siegel, the famous gangster, went to Nevada and started Las Vegas because he said it was too hard trying to pay off cops in L.A. Everyone wanted a piece. Everyone had to get their cut, from the district attorney's office to the judges. Los Angeles was just a cesspool of corruption, too corrupt for the notorious gangster to handle. So, under the direction of LAPD's Captain Jones, 200 police officers began to search the northeastern part of the city hoping for a break or happy ending that could help patch their damaged reputation. They dragged the Lincoln Park Lake. They put out a nationwide be on the lookout, inform the media, get the little Walters picture out there everywhere, hoping to find the boy. The whole country gets wrapped up in the story of this angelic looking little boy. And I have to say from all the photos of him, he is one cute guy too. And then five months later, they find him. Hooray! Walter had been found in DeKalb, Illinois. The how and why of Walter's trek east was hazy at best. It appeared that an ex-con named J.S. Hutchison, who had a record of statutory offenses against boys, may have taken him. Strangely, cops had word that Hutchison was supposedly still incarcerated in San Quentin. So unless Hutchison could be in two places at once, there was something hokey about the story. Illinois' authorities put Walter on a train to Los Angeles. Christine was ecstatic at the prospect of being reunited with her son. It had been five grueling and terrible months. Mother and son were brought together in juvenile hall. But when she saw him, she was gripped with ice-cold uncertainty. And the first words 
uttered by Christine were, I do not think that is my boy. Perhaps Walter's time away had changed him. He was only nine. But the longer Christine stared at this strange child, the more convinced she became that this was not her son at all. What a nightmare. And the strange boy just looked up at her and said, You're my mother, aren't you? Captain J.J. Jones of the LAPD insisted that the child was Walter. He was just a little worse for his harrowing experience. He told Christine to take the boy home and, quote, try him out for a couple of weeks, then had the press take pictures of the two together, eager for the LAPD to get some badly needed good press. Try him out. Like he's a a new pair of shoes. Try him out. (laughs) Just try him out for a little bit. See how he works out. You know, you might like him. Hesitantly, Christine agreed and took the boy back home with her. But once home, things just got weirder. He obviously wasn't her son. He was shorter than her son. He talked differently. After catching a glimpse of him in the bathtub, he was circumcised. When she later brought this fact up to Captain Jones, he explained it away, saying the procedure had been done to him during the five months he was gone. That malnutrition and stress had caused him to atrophy, and that five months away had just given him a different speech pattern. Christine takes the boy to his dentist where the dentist confirms her boy had fillings. This kid has none. Doesn't look like he'd ever even been to a dentist. She takes him to the school where the teachers don't recognize him, and they give him a handwriting test. Sure enough, he doesn't use a Los Angeles R. Uh, I guess they were still doing cursive lowercase r's the English way, which looks like an N. That's what I could figure out, at least, when I was researching this. But oddly enough, this Los Angeles R, it was a big deal. It was the real censure that nobody could seem to deny. He may have shrunk, gotten circumcised, lost all his fillings somehow. But that boy didn't use a Los Angeles R. Could not be him. Armed with this irrefutable proof, Christine marches into the LAPD. One of the reasons she's furious is that the search for her boy has been called off now. She's not only been given this strange kid who is admittedly a wild child and obstinate, but now no one is looking for her little boy any longer. Walter was out there. She was sure of it. They needed to keep searching. But Captain Jones wasn't hearing it. He was furious. The last thing the LAPD needed was more bad press. He accused her of being a bad mother, of not wanting her child anymore because he was a burden on her. He accused her of purposely trying to humiliate the LAPD and himself personally. Uh, This next part gets me so angry. So when Christine refused to back down, Jones knew exactly what to do with the stubborn woman. He had her committed to the psychopathic ward of the General Hospital for Observation under a Code 12 internment. Code 12 was invoked to jail or commit someone who was deemed difficult difficult so at least they didn't give her a lobotomy man so christine was arrested right there handcuffed and hauled off to the psych ward for observation for being difficult man if difficult was a crime today they'd have locked me up and thrown away the key many years ago i can tell you (laughs) it would take six days for a doctor to finally examine her find her sane and release her 
But by then, the whole world knew the horrible, savage truth about the fate of her son. Ladies and gentlemen, Act Three, The Chickens Come Home to Roost. Sanford stumbled along behind his grandmother and Uncle Gordon out through the desert night to the brooding shack where little Walter Collins was chained like a dog to a stake in the ground. The boy was sleeping. Sanford watched as his grandmother crept up beside him in the flickering lantern light, lifted an axe above her head, and brought the blunt end down on the boy's skull. The boy shuddered and let out a long wheeze as Grandma Sarah again lifted the axe and again brought it down on the little boy's skull. She then turned to Sanford and handed him the axe, saying, Now you do your part. Sanford refused to take the axe and hurled himself away, retching and gagging. But his uncle grabbed him by the collar, yanking him back, saying, Take the axe. Do it. Let's get out of here. Grandma chimed in. You heard him. And don't make such a fuss, child. He's likely gone already. Take your turn, fair and square. Weeping, pleading, Sanford took the axe and did as he was told. Uncle Gordon smiled and told him, We can trust you now, Sanford. Now you are really part of the family. Horror movie part right there. You know, they made a movie about this with Angelina Jolie, directed by Clint Eastwood, called The Changeling. And half the movie is just total bullshit. And they like leave the grandmother completely out. And like, in my opinion, you know, she's the best, the most intriguing anyway, you know. And they don't even make Gordon a pianist. I mean, fuck, dude, it's so spooky and surreal to imagine the sounds of classical piano drifting out over the desert. The shadowy chicken pens, a place of torture and death, juxtaposed with jazz and ragtime melodies on the piano. Yeah, but that really would make it uh, have made it a horror movie. And didn't the Changeling with Angelina Jolie like win a couple Oscars? Did it win an Oscar? I don't. I know she was nominated. I don't know if it actually. I know won, it got nominated. But... What's a, what, horror movies can win Oscars, man? Look at Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, well, nobody calls that a horror movie. They don't? No. That is fucking horror. I'm, I'm sorry. That's a horror movie. Like, I could see like Parasite won the Academy Award and I was calling it a horror movie. And other people Same. are like, no, but, it's but, not a horror movie. But no. Like, so like I actually loved I talk about this all the time. So like if you Google Silence of the Lambs, which I'm doing right now, it says, well, it, does say, it says thriller horror, but um, most of the it just says thriller or like um, thriller mystery or like it. Same with like, I, I think everything that gets super mainstream and does really well, they don't call it horror. Yeah. Like Jordan yeah. Peele's Jordan Peele's stuff has sort of transcended horror. And um, Jordan Peele. That, that is yeah, I know. I mean, Stranger Things people. I just it always blows my mind when people are like, oh, you're a horror writer. I really hate horror. And then like 20 minutes later, they're like, oh, my God, I can't wait for the new season of Stranger Things to come out. I'm like, you know, that's horror, right? <laughs> Anyway, anyway, um, yeah, I agree that we, the p- piano music, like, backdropping this whole scene is just 
utterly creepy but also the whole picture the grandmother the piano all of that does make it like just on a whole on a whole nother level totally Meanwhile, back in Saskatchewan, Canada, Sanford's sister is slowly but steadily saving her pennies, putting any bit of cash she makes away, saving up. The strange letters only perplex her. There's something wrong. She can tell. So she decides she's going down to Los Angeles to check on her dear little brother. At the ranch, Uncle Gordon continued his nefarious ways, bringing back two brothers, 12-year-old Louis Winslow, and his 10-year-old brother, Nelson. Their abduction would garner a lot of press as well. But Gordon's idea of a secluded chicken ranch in the middle of nowhere as a place to take abducted children to rape and kill, it worked extremely well. It's absolutely terrifying how he was getting away with it. And who knows how long he actually could have continued doing this if he played his cards right. Just gives me the willies to think about, man. And Uncle Gordon made them write letters home to their parents, saying, Dear Mother and Dad, we are going to Mexico to make a lot of money making yachts and airplanes. A woman gave us something to eat. Don't worry, we will be okay. Louis and Nels. Louis and Nels. Oh, that's such a heartbreaker. Gordon then asked, You want to do one? I like Nelson, but you can have Louis. Sanford was utterly repulsed and shakily replied, No, I hate seeing these things. And Gordon told him, I know. That's why you need to get used to them, Sanford. After you do one murder, everything else is free. How many times can they hang you? (laughs) You owe it to yourself. We have a level of freedom that all those working stiffs out there are never going to know. A week later, Uncle Gordon had Sanford dig a large grave in one of the chicken coops. When Gordon tossed Nelson into the grave, After caving his head in with a hatchet, Sanford noticed the little boy was still alive, still breathing. And when Gordon kicked dirt over the boy's face, Sanford watched as he inhaled particles of the black soil. The image of a little boy buried alive, inhaling dirt as his grave was filled, would haunt Sanford the rest of his life. Uncle Gordon then handed Sanford the hatchet and told him, Someone else is going into that grave tonight. It can be you, or it can be Nelson. What's it gonna be? Sanford says his soul left his body as he watched from a distance, disembodied, as he swung the hatchet and did what he had to do. Uncle Gordon then laughed and told him, You're in for all of it. The whole family will swing like Christmas tree decorations in a sharp breeze, unless we all stay out of jail. But Sanford was no longer scared of death. Death seemed desirable now. It was the shame that hurt him, that haunted him. When Uncle Gordon showed up one day with an entire family, a husband and wife and four children, enticing them to the ranch with the promise of work, Sanford flat out refused to help kill them. He'd had enough. It was too much. Gordon, realizing he couldn't manage to kill all six of them on his own, drove them back to Los Angeles, enraged. When he returned, he beat Sanford to a pulp and put him back in the pit. Sanford lay there for days. He thought for sure he was going to die there. He just kept thinking of Nelson sucking in that lungful of dirt as he was buried alive. Sanford believed this was his fate, to die that same way. He deserved it. 
he welcomed death. As Sanford made his peace with death in that shallow pit, finding death less of a burden than the tremendous guilt and shame that hung over him like a leaden cloak, Gordon arrived, pulling him free out of the pit, telling him to quickly go take a shower, get cleaned up. His sister had just sent a telegram. She was in Los Angeles and coming to see him. He'd literally been saved by his sister's arrival. Sanford was terrified that if his sister was able to glean anything nefarious going on, Uncle Gordon would kill her. Everyone put on a big act for her, giving her a tour of the chicken ranch, acting like a big happy family. But it didn't take long for Sanford's sister to see there was something going on, some dark secrets lurking beneath the surface. And when she saw the scars on Sanford's back from where Gordon had awoken him by pouring boiling water on him, she knew things were bad, very bad. And try as he might, Sanford just couldn't lie to his sister. And soon the truth was spilling out of him. Visiting Grandma and Grandpa's house in Los Angeles, a plot was formed between the siblings to secret Sanford away. But it was foiled by a furious Gordon who punched Jessie so hard in the head he knocked her out cold. And it seemed Sanford's worst fears were coming true, as Gordon descended on Jessie with a murderous glint in his eyes. But Grandma intervened, wrapping her arms around him, burying her face in his neck, and whispering, Not her, son. Not her. You can't do anything to her. I know you want to keep your freedom. Not her. Not knowing what else to do, Jessie slipped Sanford the last of her money, told him she was taking the train to Seattle, and the first chance he got, he should run away, get on the train to Seattle, and meet her there. She'd be waiting for him. But if Sanford was afraid things were going to go back to their hellish and evil, normal ways, he was luckily very wrong. The Northcots were in a panic. They sensed Jesse was going to go to the police. So in a mad frenzy, they packed up all their belongings and took off, leaving little Sanford alone and abandoned on the farm. Meanwhile, his sister Jesse had gone to the authorities, but not LAPD. Instead, she went to Canadian Immigration telling them the whole twisted tale, including the murders and the tortures. Canadian officials wired immigration police in Riverside County who went to the ranch and found Sanford. But Sanford wasn't talking. He denied knowing anything about missing children. Uncle Gordon had hammered it into the kid's head that if he talked, he would end up in prison with the rest of them, where he'd be gang-raped so badly he'd bleed to death on his cell floor. But after a couple of days in jail, Sanford came to the realization that if he really wanted to stop the evil of Uncle Gordon, if he really wanted to stop the evil of Uncle Gordon, if he wanted to save the lives of future children his uncle may get his devious hands on, he had to tell his story. And so he did, bravely, selflessly, believing in his heart that he was sealing his own doom as well. Sanford began spilling his guts to a Mr. Kelly from the district attorney's office, telling him everything, including the truth about little Walter Collins, who had been in the news so much. As Mr. Kelly listened, he noticed blood on the seat of Sanford's pants and quickly deduced the situation he'd been in, what cruelty and barbarity had been inflicted on the youngster. 
Sanford, finding a sympathetic ear, then related his own fears, all the horrible things his uncle had told him would happen to him if he talked, and the attorney put them each to rest, telling him he would be taken care of with compassion and not to worry. He was just a child, a minor, and the awful ordeal hadn't been his fault. It was over, and Sanford was safe now. He had nothing to fear. Sanford estimated there had been at least 20 abductions and murders that he was aware of, most children of migrant Mexican farm workers. But who knows how many there were before he even arrived. Ladies and gentlemen, Act 4. Denouement, both joyful and bitter. When the story hit the papers, it was a huge sensation, and the press wanted to know, how did Christine Collins react to the news that her boy had been killed on a desolate chicken ranch? What were her thoughts now that she knew the true fate of her son? Of course, she was locked up against her will in a psych ward at the time, cut off from the world and not knowing about any of this. But get this, Captain Jones, the same guy who'd had Christine committed, lied to the press, making a statement that Christine was so devastated by the news about Walter that she'd had a mental breakdown and was in the hospital. The fuck, man? This guy is such an asshole. It's fucking insane. And the imposter, the kid who was saying he was Walter Collins, well, he confessed too. His real name was Arthur Hutchins Jr., and he was a runaway. His mother had died and his father remarried. He claims his new stepmother was incredibly cruel, and so he'd hit the road. Kind of a Grimm's fairy tale thing going on there. When he realized that he bore a resemblance to the missing Collins boy, he saw an opportunity to start a new life in Los Angeles. And if he was lucky, go to Hollywood to meet his favorite cowboy star, Tom Mix. In his written confession, he said, I said I was Walter Collins because I wanted to get into the movies in Hollywood. And so, you know, you got to remember, this was a time before child labor laws and kids, they could just go out and find work and be on their own. It was a much different world than it is today. That's for sure. Uh, after this was all over, he'd go on to be a carny, keeping on with his adventurous traveling ways. Grandpa gets picked up in Los Angeles, where he was still milling about, trying to pawn the last of their possessions. But Grandma and Uncle Gordon have hightailed it back to Canada. Now, just to show how deranged this family is, when Sanford's mother, Winnie, hears how her brother had been keeping her son as a sex slave and murdering children for amusement, what do you think she does? She goes on the run with him. Just like, what the fuck? But these two weird siblings are soon nabbed up. Grandma, too. And Gordon and his mother are extradited back to Los Angeles to stand trial for their crimes. Christine is released from the psych ward, obviously floored by all the insane events that have unfolded in the six short days she'd been held. But... A mother's hope is eternal, and she refuses to believe her son is dead without undeniable, irrefutable proof. So Christine clings to the hope that her son is somehow alive, even though Grandma Sarah soon confesses to having killed Walter, and Sanford tells his sad story of having been with him and being forced to participate in the murder. 
and detectives even find scraps of Walter's clothing. But there's no body, as Uncle Gordon had buried the corpse somewhere out in the desert. And Uncle Gordon is denying everything, claiming he has no idea who this Walter Collins child is. Christine Collins meets with Gordon in jail, and he tells her he did not kill her son. And in just one more ironic, crazy twist, Gordon, representing himself at the trial, you know, he asked to be his own lawyer, as so many of these narcissistic assholes do. Gordon calls Christine to the stand where she testifies she doesn't think he is the killer. She doesn't think he killed her son. And it's it's really it's the hope in her as a mother that makes her say these things. And it's so crazy. She's testifying for the defense in the murder trial of her own son. But it's all out of a mother's love, a mother's blind faith and hope. It's so, so sad. And then when it appears things couldn't get any more bizarre, they do. As Gordon calls himself to the stand, grilling himself, asking questions and answering them. He suggests the relationship between his mother and himself is sexual in nature and says that she dressed him as a girl, as a child. And there's also this bizarre rumor that Gordon's mother is actually his sister, Winnie, who had been raped by their father. Personally, this seems like an attempt to muddy the waters and get some kind of sympathy for Gordon. I, I, who knows, but I personally don't believe any of this. And Cyrus, the father, he denied it all. So Ugh, Gordon also calls his nephew Sanford to the stand and does such a poor and bumbling job of questioning the youth. The prosecution doesn't object a single time. They give him enough rope to hang himself, most literally, for he was found guilty by the all-male jury, the details being thought too grotesque for a woman to hear. And on October 2nd, 1930, he was hanged at San Quentin Prison. They say he had to be carried to the gallows. He was just a weeping, blubbering mess, and they basically rolled him on through the trap door. And because the drop wasn't as sudden as it would have been if he had been standing, his neck was not broken. And he just slowly strangled to death. Couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. <laughs> and Gordon's mother, because she confessed to everything, including murdering Walter Collins, was spared the death penalty and was actually paroled in 1940. She died four years later. I can't believe she got out. And the little town of Wineville... They were so embarrassed by all this publicity, they actually changed their name to Mira Loma. Sanford went on to lead a rich, full life. He served honorably in World War II, worked for the Postal Service, married, and had children. He died in 1991 at the age of 78. That's 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 amazing. You know, that's really great. I'm glad, glad for yeah. him. Christine Collins went on to sue Captain Jones for having her put in a psych ward when she refused to accept an imposter as her son. And she won a judgment of 10,800 bucks, which would actually be about 150 grand in today's money. But Captain Jones, he just refused to pay her. He just wouldn't do it. She brings him to court again and again, several times demanding payment. This guy never paid her a dime. Ugh, what a stubborn, ugh, just ugh, he, nothing. Ugh. <laughs> And in fact, Captain Jones got off easy. The LAPD suspended him for four months without pay. And that was the extent of his punishment for what he'd done to Christine Collins. Mm. Christine, she 
never stopped searching for Walter until the day she died on December 8th, 1964 in Los Angeles. And that brings us to the conclusion of our four-act retelling of the Wineville Chicken Shack murders. We hope you've enjoyed it, and be sure to tune in next week for more tales of murder and mayhem here on Murder Coaster. Next week's is a doozy, and also listener requested. I want to give a quick thanks to Ashley again for her support. And hey, you, we want to hear from you too. You got a case you think we should cover? Did we get something wrong? Do you just want to say hi? Drop us a line at murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. That's murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. Catch you next time.